Amen. Well, this morning I want to address you on the title, Apostolic Nasty. Apostolic Nasty. My definition of nasty is not disgusting, but here it is. That consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. Consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. When I was seven years old, I was sent to boarding school. It was a great school. I learned to speak some Latin and play rugby and cricket, joined the Boy Scouts, learned to play the clarinet, participate in school dramas, and a range of other things at this British boarding school. It was a wonderful experience, but it wasn't home. And at the end of that three-month term, I would sit on those stone steps of school, fix my eyes on the dirt road around which Ben, my father, would come in an old Peugeot 504, and I would just long with my little seven-year-old heart for father to come so I could go home. School was great. It wasn't home. 120 years ago, a band of simple men and women sat down on the stone steps of earth and they realized this world is not our home. There's some wonderful things about it, thank the Lord, but this is not where we belong and we want to be with our Heavenly Father. We want to go home where there is no sin, no darkness, no death, no night. We want to go home. But they looked at the world around them and it was broken and dysfunctional. There was racism back then, injustice back then, corruption back then, and it wasn't getting any better. And so that little band of men and women went to the scriptures and they read verses like Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. And they said, aha, that's it. Here we are, sitting on the steps of earth, and we want to go be with Jesus. Well, we have our instructions. Take the gospel to all the nations, and then Jesus will come. But there's a problem. We're poor. We're weak. We're not educated. We don't have access to the halls of power. And they went back to their Bibles, and they found verses like Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they said, all right, we want to go home, but we're weak. we got to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they began to seek for the filling of the Holy Spirit, not so they could speak in tongues, but so they could take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? So Jesus would come. Why? So we could go home. That's what it means to be Pentecostal. That's what it means to be assemblies of God. So desperate to be with Jesus that we dedicate ourselves to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. And we need to get a little bit nasty about it. Why? Well, in 1985... There were about two and a half billion people in the world that didn't know Jesus. About half of those, about 1.5 billion in what we call unreached people groups. No Christians, no churches, no Bibles, no access to the gospel. 
Well, 2021, now there are 6 billion people in the world who do not know Jesus, 3.2 billion of which are in unreached people groups, 7,000 of them, no Bibles, no access, no Christians, no churches, no ability to really understand the gospel in their own heart language. It's getting worse, not better. And if we're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that Jesus comes, so we all get home, we're going to have to get a little bit nasty. Are you with me? Apostolic nasty is a consecrated edginess, not a carnal grumpiness. A consecrated edginess on the worth of Jesus and His glory amongst all nations. To be apostolic nasty, I have three points this morning. We're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. We're going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. We're going to have to pray as Jesus prayed. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes to cleanse the temple. I don't know your view of Jesus. We have so made him in our own image. We've made him something that he isn't. Mark 11 takes us back to the fury, the terror, the wonder of gentle Jesus who basically goes postal and he is forcibly evicting people from the temple. Whether he beat people or not, that's up for debate. But the verb in the text says he drove them from the temple. He did not allow them to buy and sell because they were camped up in the court of the Gentiles, the place in the temple where all the nations could meet Jehovah God. And because they're all scattered in there, making a lot of confusion, he drives them out. Now, I live in the Middle East, and I know it doesn't work in the Middle East to say, oh, excuse me, sir, please don't sell those pigeons in the temple. Please, would you exit to your right no, that didn't work. You know as well as I did, right? There was some physicality involved here. There was some nastiness. I picture him kicking over tables and whipping animals or whatever he had to do to get them out of there. You're tracking with me, right? Nasty. Why was Jesus so upset? Why were his eyes on fire? Why was he physically removing people from the place where the Gentiles were allowed to meet? Well, he quotes Isaiah 56. Don't let the foreigner say, there's no place for me in God's house, or the eunuch, here I am, a dry tree. For even in my house, you'll be given a place better than sons and daughters. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And when the very place where the nations were intended to come and meet with Jehovah God was cluttered up with commerce, Jesus gets nasty. And he drives them out. Another example would be Paul himself. You remember what Paul was doing before his conversion? Dragging people out of their homes, committing them to prison, infers in the text, even sending them to their death. Paul was just like Old Testament zealous, right? You remember in the Old Testament, Phineas sticks a spear through a man and women who are desecrating God's honor, or the prophets of Baal, 400 of them killed by the prophet Elijah. Paul's in that school. He is living like the prophets and the potentates and the patriarchs for the honor of God before all peoples. And if anything besmirches God's honor, Paul's going to go after that. But what changed everything for him was a revelation of Jesus. And instead of keeping people out, Paul says, how do we bring the nations in? But my contention here is that Paul, even after he was saved, he didn't lose his nasty. Why do I say that? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you so soon to leave the gospel of grace? Might as well go the whole way and castrate yourself. 
Don't look at me weird, that's in the Bible. That's what he said, right? I withstood Peter to his faith. Turn this one over to Satan for the redemption of his soul. John Mark, you're off the team. You're not going to cut it. Sorry, you can't go. You whitewashed wall, he says to the head of the Sanhedrin. Who told you to strike me? I'd rather die for the sake of my brethren, the Israelites. This is not a balanced man. This is someone who's got a little bit of nasty in him, right? Apostolic nasty. Fixed, Paul was, on the regions beyond. Doing whatever it took for the gospel to go forward. Fixated on the worth of Jesus. Archibald Porter, 1909, the Stone Church in Chicago, one of our first Pentecostal churches that would come into the Assemblies of God. He had been in Central Arabia for 18 years without a break. So he comes back to the Stone Church to give a report. On his first day in the center of Arabia, he's locked up into a cave, and for 36 hours in 120 degrees heat, he hasn't any water. He has to live with his wife in this little dugout cave, and after six months, he reports, I came back from a meeting with people, and there I found my wife dead. He had to walk 220 kilometers to find the nearest position where he could send a letter to her family. He lived in an area where for 2,000 miles, there wasn't another Christian. This is 1890. His son dies after six weeks. Two other single ladies die. He lives the rest of his life in the center of Arabia, and he says, I would rather die in the sands of Arabia than the comfort of an American bed. I would rather be in an area where there isn't another Christian for 2,000 miles than to be in a place that is littered with churches. Why? He had apostolic nasty. And even if his wife died and his son died and his team members died, he was going to stay there for the glory of Jesus. If we want to go home, I'm simply saying this. If you want to be with Jesus, no curse, no death, no night. You have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's not easy. You're going to have to have a little bit of nasty. And don't think it's just the Pauls or the Jesuses or the Archibald Forders of the world. A few years ago, we were in the city of Muscat, Oman, visiting one of our young families. Oman, as a nation, has probably less than 12 believers in the whole country. I walked into the kitchen early one morning and the sun was shining through the window and it was a little domestic scene. Emily was the mom. Her little baby was just a toddler sitting in a high chair eating Cheerios. I remember seeing a little Cheerio stuck on her forehead. Music from worship song is playing. It was just this cute little domestic scene in Muscat, Oman. Cute little mom, cute little toddler, sunshine through the window, worship music, bowl of Cheerios. It looked really cute. Then I looked over at the white ceramic tile on that kitchen wall where Emily had put with her elegant cursive, it's wartime. She hadn't lost her nasty. You could be a young mom with a little toddler. Don't forget we're at war. We're at war for the souls of men and women in the darkest places of earth. It's wartime. Apostolic nasty. We're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. And I don't mean fight against other people. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he was cleansing his own house. What is it in your heart that mitigates against the glory of Jesus in all the world, amongst all peoples? That has got to go. And you've got to get physical about it.
you've got to get violent in the sense that you remove from your own thinking, your own heart, your own emotions, your own psyche, whatever it might be, your own behavior. You go after whatever mitigates the glory of Jesus amongst all peoples. This is not a time for balance. This is not a time to be politically correct. This is a time to identify what it is in our heart, what it is in this house that limits the glory of Jesus going everywhere, and we attack that thing. The second thing is that we need to bleed as Jesus bled. The country of United Arab Emirates was only formed in about 1972. Before that, that area was called the Trucial State, named after the word truce in English, where all these sheikhs, these leaders of tribes, made a truce with the British to give them protection, and then later on they organized into the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, etc. Well, in 1960, there was a married couple called the Kennedys, Dr. and Dr. Kennedy. They got an old Land Rover and they drove into the desert inland from the Persian Gulf and they came to a little village called Al Ain. 1,500 people lived in the desert around this small village. They found a woman who had been in labor for three days, unable to give birth. They diagnosed her that her bladder had been so swollen, protracted with urine that the baby couldn't emerge they didn't have their medical instruments with them, and so Dr. Kennedy, the man, opened up the, the hood of his old Land Rover, found the smallest diameter hose that he could, cut it out of his engine, inserted it in the woman, made his own catheter, drained her bladder, and then his wife, Dr. Kennedy as well, was able to safely deliver that new little baby. The sheikh of that village, his name was Zaid, was so impressed with that, he said, I want you guys to open up a clinic, and I want you to help all of our mothers bear our children in our tribe. So they did that, 1960. Now, when a Muslim baby is born and when a Muslim person dies, something's whispered into their ears. It is the Islamic confession. No God but God, and Muhammad's the prophet of God. It's the first thing a baby hears, last thing a dying person hears. Well, when Dr. Kennedy was delivering all of these little babies to this tribal Arab people. He would pray over them in the name of Jesus. And the very first thing that those babies would hear would be the name of Jesus prayed over them. And one of the very first babies that was born into her hands was the son of the sheikh who had given them permission, Sheikh Zaid. His name was Muhammad. Muhammad bin Zaid. Now Sheikh Zaid is the founder of the United Arab Emirates. And Muhammad is currently the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, who last year was voted the most powerful Arab in the whole world. All of these peace treaties with Israel from the Emirates and Bahrain and other places, he's the one who's driving it. And he was prayed over when he was born in the name of Jesus. That clinic has become a hospital. Written above it in Arabic is the Great Commission's. Bibles are given out. When these babies are born on day one, week one, week nine, visits are given to the homes and Bible studies are conducted in these homes. And it goes back to the Kennedys. Now when they first started this clinic, no refrigeration, no electricity. And so in order to have a blood bank, they gave the blood types of all of the staff, the Kennedys included, put it up on the wall. And Dr. Kennedy, the woman, her blood type was O negative. 
universal donor. So she gave more blood than anyone else. One day, she's doing an operation on a woman who begins to hemorrhage. She scrubs out, donates her own blood, scrubs back in, saves the woman's life, and delivers the baby. And they say of Dr. Kennedy that she gave blood so often that she lived anemic. That's the missionary call. That we give blood so often that we live anemic. That we pour out our lives in some forsaken desert outpost of the world for the sake of little babies that will be born, prayed over in the name of Jesus, and then one day change the world. We are sent to bleed as Jesus bled. To die tired with nothing in the bank. We have established in Western culture so many boundaries for ourselves that we no longer lay down our lives for anyone. We have all these boundaries to protect ourselves so that we can be fat and happy and wealthy. But what about the world, 6 billion now, 3.2 unreached, that are perishing without access to the gospel because we refuse to live anemic? We're to bleed as Jesus bled. And I want to just encourage you in that there is a, a joy, and it's expressed by Paul in Philippians 3.10 when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Then what did he say? And the fellowship of His sufferings and conformity to His death. What was the sufferings of Jesus? What was the context of it? He died for the sins of the world, right? Jesus died to save other people. And Paul says, I want to know that. There's something in that. There's something when you give your blood. There is something when you spend your life for others. There is a knowledge of God in that which cannot be gained here, surrounded by Christians in a church that is all wonderful. But out there in the world, in the darkest places, by the gates of hell, when we spend and are spent for Jesus, when we spill our blood, when we give of our life and our energy, there's a knowledge of God that can be attained there that cannot be attained anywhere else. Do not be afraid of going out into the earth and giving your blood for the lost because you will experience a knowledge of Jesus that you cannot get anywhere else. Don't feel sorry for missionaries. You should be jealous because they're learning something about Jesus that cannot be gained here at home. Because we're sent to make money. They complain to the magistrates. If you remember the story, put Paul in prison, beat him, put him in prison. Then the earthquake, the Philippian jailer gets saved. And it's very interesting that at the end of that, Paul, when he said you can leave prison, says, nope, tell the magistrates to come get me out themselves. Why? Because I'm a Roman citizen, and they beat me without trial. They didn't do due process, which in the Roman world is a big problem for the magistrates, right? My question for you is this. Why did Paul play the Roman card after he was beaten and went to prison? Why didn't he play it before? He didn't have to be beaten. He didn't have to go to prison. Why did he stay quiet about his Roman status until after the beating and after prison? Well, in the Roman world, there is this thing called patron-client 
status. So the patrons had the power and they would give favors. But then the clients receiving those favors would owe obedience and submission to the patrons. So when Paul doesn't play the Roman card and then is beaten and then is imprisoned, chained to a wall, there's a flip in the power source. At the beginning, the magistrates have the power. They put Paul in prison. But when he reveals that they broke the law and that all he has to do is report them to the governor, he now has the power. He becomes the patron because all he has to do is go to the Roman governor and say, these guys broke the law. They beat me, an untried Roman citizen. They will lose their position. They'll lose their status. They'll lose their reputation. Now they have to come head in hand to Paul. We're so sorry. Would you please leave, right? He's got the power. And what does he do in the last verse of Acts 16? He goes to the house of Lydia. And then he leaves town. What's he doing? Remember, now he has the status. And here's a little house church in a woman's home. And he goes and he visits them. And he's making a declaration to the magistrates. This woman and this household is with me. And if you lift one finger against them, when I'm gone, I will report you and you're finished. And Paul, because he went through that beating, because he went through that imprisonment, now has the power and he confers that power on the little nation church and when he goes, they can thrive. And the same thing for the Philippian jailer. If Paul would have paid the Roman card, the Philippian jailer and his household don't get saved. And here's what happens. Paul gave up his rights and he suffered something he could have escaped for the good of the church, for the good of those who would come to Jesus. So what rights are you willing to give up? And what blood are you willing to spill? Something you could avoid. Something that you have privilege for. Something that you could escape. But if you have apostolic nasty, you don't stand on rights or privilege. You say, I'm going to give that up so that someone might be saved for the glory of Jesus amongst all people. So not only do we fight as Jesus fought, we bleed as Jesus bled. And then lastly, I would like to just point out that we pray as Jesus prayed. We know he prayed early. We know he prayed often. We know he prayed about big decisions. We know Matthew 26, not my will, glorify thy name. And I don't know if it's escaped your attention, but we do believe Jesus is God, right? Isn't it interesting that God on the earth prayed so much? Bit of a mystery there, isn't there, that God prays? Even more than that, Hebrews 7 verse 25 tells us what Jesus is doing right now. Crucified on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, seated on the throne with all power, all majesty, all authority. What with all of that power, all of that authority, what is Jesus doing right now? He ever lives to make intercession for us. Wrap your mind around that. That God Almighty seated on the heavenly throne. What's he doing with his eternal time? He's praying for you and for me. I don't think I understand that. But what I do take from that is if God on the earth prayed and God on the throne's praying, I better be praying too. Right? <laughs> So a couple months ago, I was on a walk in Jeddah, and, you know, Jennifer and I pray in tongues more there than we ever have anywhere else in our life, because we just don't know what to do. And so I'm praying, but I'm also having a conversation with Jesus, and I, 
I'd been through a stretch where I didn't really have compassion for lost people. I thought, what's wrong with me? Jesus, I'm not feeling it right now. And I write the books, and I preach the sermons, and I've lived my whole life challenging people to love the lost and to spend themselves for the lost. And here I am in Jeddah. I couldn't give a fig about Arabs right now. Just don't have the compassion for them. What's wrong with me, Jesus? I'm just not feeling it. The Lord brought Jennifer to mind because uh, my wife likes tiny houses. You know what those are? Take like a little sea container or something small. I have no interest in that at all. But she likes it and sometimes she'll find something on Instagram. She'll come and show it to me. Hey, what do you think of this? And again, I, I have no interest in that. But I have a lot of interest in her, right? And I love her. So because I love her, I'm like, oh, that's nice, honey. Uh, great. Yeah, wonderful. And the Lord brought that to mind. And then I said, Jesus... Just honestly, I'm not really interested in the lost right now. But I know you are. And I love you. And because you're interested in lost people, I'm going to be interested too. You might not have a lot of energy or desire to pray right now. But I know you love Jesus. And because you love Jesus, we pray. You might not have a lot of interest in unreached people groups or the world out there. You might be so consumed with very real problems here at home. We understand that. But I know you love Jesus. And Jesus died for the sins of the world. Because you love him, you're going to be interested in what Jesus is interested in as well. And sometimes we don't have the feeling or the emotion. Sometimes we just grit it out. Because we love him. And because we love him, it becomes sweet to us. We pray as Jesus prayed. 1942 is the middle of World War II. Churchill was the prime minister in the United Kingdom. It was the difficult days of the Battle of Britain. And in those very stressful moments, the coal miners went on strike. There's a couple problems. Number one, they were down in the bowels of the earth. They weren't getting the credit of being in the Air Force or the Home Guard or the Navy where all the action was. They were just digging out the coal Secondly, they weren't being paid very much, and so they threatened to go on strike. Churchill meets with them, and he gave this famous speech where he essentially said this. We're going to win the war. One day we're going to win. And when we win this war, we're going to have a big old parade. And in that parade, first will come the Air Force. They fought the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. Then will come the Navy. They kept the sea lanes open so we could get the supplies to our army. Then will come... The army and the infantry who took the ground and held it with blood, sweat, tears, and toil. And they will receive their applause and their reward. But at the end of that parade, last in line, will come a band of dirty, disheveled men with old clothes, wrinkles on their faces, and black soot all over their bodies. And they will be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We cut the coal that won the war. There's a lot of drama about missionaries and excitement and perhaps even Christian glamour. But that's not what wins the war. Prayer is what wins the war. And prayer can be done without a passport, without a visa, without a degree. 
Prayer can be done in your car driving to work. Prayer can be done in your living room, around your dining table, when you're putting your children to bed, when you lay down to sleep, early in the morning, when you rise with Jesus, because you love him. You see, in this battle for the glory of Jesus, amongst all peoples, we are going to win the war. We are. And one day, we're going to have a parade in heaven. And first will come the Hudson Taylors and the William Careys and the Billy Grahams and the John Pipers and some of the legends. And they will have their reward and their applause. And then will come a little old grandma from Saginaw, Michigan. A simple Chinese leader of a house church and a poor African pastor. And they will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were down on our knees with our faces to the Lord. We pray as Jesus prays because to him is all the glory and all the honor. And from him comes all the power and all the strength and all the resource. An apostolic nasty starts down on our knees with our faces to the Lord. And we battle there in prayer. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. It tells us that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation one day will be around that throne and it's going to be a big old parade. You're going to be there. And when you're there, you will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And I hope to God you can answer, I was down on my knees with my face to the Lord. So here we stand, here we sit, 120 years later. The earth is no better than it was when the Pentecostal revival began. There's more lost people than ever before. And like them, we look around and we look within. It's not just the junk out there that disturbs me. I know it's in my head. I know it's in my heart. And I'm tired of it. I want to be free from that forever. But I know that I will not be completely free from sin and all the darkness without until the trumpet sounds and the sky recedes and the Lord descends. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and ever with the Lord. I don't get to go home until that happens. And that doesn't happen until the gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world amongst every people group as a witness. And there's no way that can happen without the filling of the Holy Spirit. So here we are, the people of God, we realize we've got to get nasty. We've got to fight as Jesus fought. We've got to bleed as Jesus bled. We've got to pray as Jesus prayed. And we can't do any of that without the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But come to us. Come in power. Come in purity. Come in fullness. And fill us and possess us with the Holy Spirit. Why? So we can preach the gospel to every people group. Why? So Jesus comes.
and we all go home. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want us just to answer these simple questions. Have you forgotten where home is? Have you forgotten whatever niceties this earth affords that it's not home? And do you want to go home? Do you want to be with Jesus forever? And do you realize that the way we hasten the Lord's coming is by being involved in missions, by taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every people? And do you further realize that we can't do that, fight, bleed, or pray, without the power of the Holy Spirit? So are you hungry for that? Do you desire that? If you today would say, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a new and a fresh way so that I can be His witness, fight for His glory, lead as He bled, pray as He prayed, so that the nations would be saved, we can all go home. Would you just come to the front? I want to pray over you. Come. That's you. Come stand here in the room yourself out. You're hungry to go home. You want to be in the presence of Jesus. You want to be involved in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know you need the Holy Spirit to do that. this auditorium and balcony would you just stand to your feet right now and would you just declare these words to the Lord
just heard the word of the Lord here this morning. And the message was so clear for us as the followers. I, I love that. A little apostolic nasty. Because he has called us to fight. He has called us to bleed and he has called us to pray. So we're going to do that right now. And I love the end of that message because there is nothing that you and I can accomplish in our own strength without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't fight in our own strength. We can't bleed because we can't even pray in our own strength, but that the Spirit would lead us. Can I get an amen here this morning? We need His leading in our lives. So before I close us, I want to take a moment, if we could, to seek the Lord together and pray. Would you begin to pray all across this room right now? Would you bow your hearts before him? Would you even just, just out loud, just begin to allow yourself to pray over, over that which the Lord and the Holy Spirit leads you to, that this world that we know, our families would come to know him, that missionaries would go, that we would put our face like those coal miners at the very face of the Lord, because we are right now at the cutting edge. Come on, let's pray, church, right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. Holy Spirit, empower us today. Lord God, we pray. Jesus. 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 Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we need you, Lord. Yeah.
before you in this moment, God, that your kingdom would rise on this earth. Lord, that your name would be lifted high to every unreached people group that still exists, God. We pray for a mighty move. God, we pray that you would raise up leaders. Pray that you would raise up missionaries. We pray even in this room, you may be speaking to hearts and lives to be a part of that movement to experience that your name would be proclaimed in all the earth. But today, Lord, we look inward. In this moment, we look at our own hearts. Help us to fight. Help us to plead. Lord, help us to pray. support 70 missionaries church it's not about the 70 that we support it's about the next 70 that we get to support and send and move and see God move in their hearts and their lives as you leave here today you're going to see a lot of booths out there in your hand was put this missionary connect and inside you're going to see every single one of the missionaries that we currently support and prayerfully support. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I want to be a part of praying for those. I want to be a part of what God's doing in their hearts and their lives, everything that God is doing in their homes, their families, and their ministries. I pray that you take this with you and that you pray over each and every one of those. I can't wait for this Wednesday night. We're going to have a moment of prayer together over all of these. Today as you leave, would you make sure to stop by. The missions council is going to be out there at all of those tables. And would you connect with them? You could join an incredible army movement of prayer to touch hearts and lives in an incredible way. And next week, we're going to gather together again and hear the word of the Lord. Were you empowered by the message today? Could we give our friend Dick Brogdon just thank you, sir, for bringing that incredible message. Come on. So as we go this week, let's remember to fight, to bleed. Come on, I know that one's not so popular, right? Come on. But what an incredible heart to live like Jesus lived. Go this week and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be blessed. Have an awesome week. We'll see you Wednesday. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.